Hey, small town fam. This is Paul Holes. Make sure you subscribe to The Briefing Room with Detectives Dan and Dave. Season two is out now. Subscribe now and thanks. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When a young teenager tells her father that her former stepdad spent several years sexually abusing her when she was younger, Detective Dave is called in to investigate. At face value, and given the length of time between the crime and the victim's disclosure, the case appears to be perilously light on physical evidence. But Detective Dave has never been one to take things at face value. Please be warned that this episode involves the sexual abuse of a minor. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Yardley. And I'm Zibby. And we're fascinated by true crime. So we invited our friends, Detectives Dan and Dave, to sit down with us and share their most interesting cases. I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. We're identical twins, and we're detectives in small town USA. Dave investigates sex crimes and child abuse. Dan investigates violent crimes. And together, we've worked on hundreds of cases, including assaults, robberies, murders, burglaries, sex abuse, and child abuse. Names, locations, and certain details of these cases have been altered to protect the privacy of the victims and their families. I'm Detective Dave, and I was the lead investigator on this particular case. It's a sex abuse case. When the disclosure came out, it's a girl who's a middle school-aged girl, but this was pretty typical of most disclosures. It's a delayed disclosure. This sex abuse had happened years prior, and this girl finally felt comfortable enough to come out with, with what had happened to her. Why did she wait that long? Victimology and what we know, based on my experience and just dealing with this caseload is victims talk about the worst thing that ever happened to them when they finally are ready, when they feel safe, when they're with somebody's trusted, when they are away from the person who did this to them and they feel safe. So victims talk when they're ready to talk and ambushing somebody or kind of cold contacting them and saying, hey, have you ever been sexually abused? Doesn't usually get a disclosure. So how old was she when this happened, and how old was she when she actually disclosed? 
Best we can tell is the abuse started sometime when she was maybe in the six to seven year old range and happened over course of two or three years up until she was nine or 10. And the victim in this case, Cassie, she is middle school age by the time she finally feels comfortable enough to talk about this. And the circumstances surrounding that are her father had gone through her smartphone and checked her internet history and noticed that she was looking up YouTube videos that were showing naked women, not necessarily engaging in sexual acts, but kind of a exploratory, let's learn about female anatomy. And her dad was a little bit concerned, why are you looking this stuff up? So he confronts his daughter. And during the course of that conversation and her dad trying to educate her about, you know, it's the initial birds and the bees speech between dad and daughter, uh, the subject of touching and, you know, if you ever feel unsafe about somebody touching your body, you can come to me, I'm your dad, I will protect you. And she said, basically, like my stepdad used to do to me. Oh, God. And he gulps, does the, what are you talking about? And Cassie goes on to tell him that her former stepfather, her mother's no longer married to this man, but his name is Patrick, that when he was in her life years prior, Patrick would touch her inappropriately, but there were times when she spoke up about what he was doing and that she didn't like it, so he would stop. Oh, my God. So did the dad then instantly call? The dad calls the police and says, I need to talk to somebody. We send a patrol officer out, start the report process, gather the initial details, the who, the what, the when, the why. And do you go out on that call? I typically don't go on that. It'll be a patrol officer who takes that, and then they'll write up a report. It gets forwarded back to me, and I do the follow-up on that case. So in this case, my next step is we've already got the girl telling dad about what this guy's done to her. We go through a forensic interview process where it's not a cop who's interviewing this girl. That's a trained forensic investigator who just interviews children. Typically, it's about sex abuse or physical abuse. And that'll be a videotaped interview. I'll watch it in real time from a, a room across the hallway. That way, I'm a witness to what this girl's disclosing. And that allows me to kind of build my case on what she was exposed to, what what kind of details she associated with the abuse. In this case, the girl remembers the, the bedspread that was on the bed when this stuff would happen, what house they were in, that it happened at a different house as well. Over the course of a few years, this guy had moved. And so then I gather kind of the facts about the, the family dynamic. When was this guy in her life? When was he out of her life? And in doing so, I talked to victim's mother, right after this girl was interviewed and kind of get the timeline of when were you with this guy? Well, I was married to him for a short period of time. My daughter I had with a different man, with her father, so he was her stepfather. She referred to Patrick as daddy. The girl did. The girl did because he was in her life from the time she was just a little girl for a few years. And while the mom is married to Patrick, she also has a son with him. So Cassie has a little brother. I see. Patrick and Cassie's mom get a divorce. Patrick still wants contact with Cassie because he feels like he's her father. So the mom doesn't see any problem with this. So when the son would go to visits with Patrick, he would ask that Cassie be allowed to come with him. And the mom was completely oblivious at this time? 
Mom's completely oblivious, has no reason to think that this guy would be abusing her child. You know, nobody ever thinks the worst like that. She says, you know, it's really nice of you to, you know, give me a, a weekend to myself. Plus, you know, you remain in Cassie's life. She looks at you as a dad. So this is all in good faith. She's sending kiddo off with the wolf. And so even after their divorce for up to a year and a half, two years, this girl on weekends, every other weekend, is going with her brother over to Patrick's house. And that's when the sexual abuse would occur is when he had her one-on-one -on -one. son's in another bedroom sleeping, and he would bring Cassie into his bedroom and sexually abuse her. So is Patrick abusing Cassie while the mom is still married to him? Or only when they've divorced and she's going to visit him in his own house? It's difficult to tell. Um, the mom does report that Patrick used to put Cassie to bed when they were married still, and he would spend up to an hour in her bedroom at night. He would close the door behind him, and his excuse for that was, I don't want any noise to wake her up. I'm putting her to bed. An hour with the door closed? Her mother didn't have any suspicions? The mother didn't have any suspicions. It turns out that it's a pretty critical detail in this case that once this divorce happened, within about a month is when these visits where she goes off with her, her brother to Patrick's house. Within a couple of weeks of those visits starting, the girl discloses to her mother that this guy's sexually abusing her. The mother doesn't ever believe that this guy could ever do that. And she confronts suspect Patrick and says, she says that you're showing her porn videos and that you're doing this kind of stuff with her, sexually abusing her. And he goes, no, I mean, there was a time where I was watching porn and she walked into my room and, and saw it, but it was accidental. And he tries to explain it away that way. This woman's thinking, I'm not, this guy isn't a sexual abuser and takes his word for it. So that disclosure happens in probably 2008, right after this divorce. And the disclosure that generates the police report happens in 2015. Oh, my. But the mother gives some pretty good detail about the date. She remembers the day her daughter brought that up because it coincided with a company picnic for the company she worked at. And I was able to corroborate that date to figure out, okay, this is when this abuse was brought up by Cassie. So I kind of have a place to start from. And that way I can age Cassie so I know which crimes apply to her. Because the younger the victim, the more you can charge the perpetrator with? Right. So if you're of a certain age, a certain charge is going to apply. In this case, the girl's under 10 while all this abuse is happening. So it's pretty easy. In our state, there's an enhancement when a child is of that age. It triples the potential sentence. So she's a little girl. We're well within that window of time. So that's important in this case because his exposure to prison sentences triples based on her age. So how do you go about investigating this when you have basically a seven or eight year lag? So these cases are typically the he said, she said, and we won't get a whole lot of evidence. It comes down to corroborating interview details when the girl gets forensically interviewed and she gives so many layers of detail. She remembers what they would do in the room when this sexual abuse would happen, what her bedspread looked like, what the room looked like, sensory details that 
when we get, oh, I got sexually abused, we don't typically get five more layers of detail. This girl's given all kinds of details so much so that while I'm listening to this interview, I'm going, I'm arresting this guy. There's no way she could make that up. She's describing scenarios and acts that would be difficult or nearly impossible for a child to have knowledge of. Um, there's some suggestion that someone could coach that into a kid, but she's giving so much detail that I'm going, this girl is reliving this. And when she's giving you this information, what's her demeanor? Is she matter-of-fact about it now that it's been several years, or does she seem traumatized like she's reliving it all over again? She is subdued, but matter-of-fact, there's times where she starts to get emotional, but it's at appropriate times where she's recalling this trauma to her. Those interviews are tough to watch, but they're valuable because you're seeing as that subject comes up in their mind, how they're reacting to it. And who's in the room with her? Just an interviewer. It's a one-on-one. That way there's no suggestion that she's being coached, that you know we don't put her mom in the room with her to listen to what she says. We don't put her biological father in the room with her so a defense attorney can't come back later on and say, well, off camera, the dad's saying, okay, now say this. No, it's clean. It's, you know, there's a proven process about forensic interviews. I could go off on a tangent about that, but this is a clean interview with a very experienced interviewer who asks open-ended questions. Is the interviewer male or female? This interviewer is female, and I've worked with her extensively, and she is fantastic. One of the best resources we have in my career field. And did the sexual abuse start out slow? Like, did Cassie's stepdad test things out, or was he just full-on, explicit, and aggressive right out of the gate? The girl didn't have that kind of recollection. We usually don't ask kids how many times did it happen. We try to get, like, a frequency. Did this happen once, more than once? What's your recollection? They'll say, well, more than once, and sometimes they'll even offer. This was every weekend that I went over there. Well, how many weekends did you go over there? Every weekend for three years. Hey, Small Town Fam. Did you know that according to FBI property crime data, most home break-ins happen in broad daylight. So as the days get longer this spring, protect your home with Simply Safe. It's the award-winning home security that we recommend. Hey, small town fam, Detective Dave here. Yardley's right. As a former police officer who's responded to hundreds of alarm calls, the benefits of Simply Safe cannot be understated. On Small Town Dicks, we often discuss home security and situational awareness. Simply Safe provides an easy and effective way for you to accomplish both. Simply Safe was just named Best Home Security System of 2024 by U.S. News and World Report and recognized for the best customer service in home security by Newsweek. And you, small town fam, can test out a Simply Safe system with absolutely no risk to you with Simply Safe's 60 day risk free trial. If you don't love your system, return it for a full refund. So protect your home today. Our listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Be sure to take advantage of the Small Town Fam discount at simplysafe.com slash smalltown. That's simplysafe.com slash smalltown. Do it.
This is an exceptional case in that when this call was made to the police by Cassie's father, when he initially heard this disclosure, that generates a call on the call screen that is seen countywide in our area. So when that call popped up on the call screen, a neighboring agency had a female that was working there who happens to be the fiancé of Patrick, suspect. No, that's impossible. Yeah. She reads this call and sees who the caller source is and has the conflict, oh my God, that's my fiancé, and has the oh shit moment, appropriately goes to her supervisor and says, there's a call on the call screen where my fiancé is being accused of sexual abuse with his former stepdaughter. Her supervisor tells her, under no circumstances are you to reveal this information to him. You will absolutely throw a landmine in this investigation if you let him know that he's a target of a sexual abuse investigation. So basically, go home and pretend like you don't know anything. Right. She is warned every different way. Don't reveal this to him whatsoever. What does she do? She goes straight home and tells him. No. Does that incriminate her? Potentially. When she alerts him to this impending investigation, she is potentially costing the whole investigation. So that's a crime in our state. It's like aiding and abetting. Right. She's basically giving this guy a heads up. Hey, by the way, you can expect to hear from the police shortly. And I find this out later that when she went home and revealed this to Patrick, they started game planning what he's going to say and how he should react when the police contact him, that he should act surprised, like he had no idea. So when Cassie was forensically interviewed, I didn't know that piece of information that suspect already knew the police were involved because this girl's been out of his life for years. My thought at that time was, hey, we've got a couple of different ways we can handle this where we can have the mom confront the suspect and see what he has to say hey, my daughter said you did this to her, and I want to know why and why is she saying this. Just hear what he has to say. When I'm making that game plan is when I get a call from the neighboring agency that says, hey, by the way, suspect already knows about your investigation because the girl self-reported. She said, I know you guys told me not to, but I told him. Did she say why? She said because she didn't believe the allegations and that she was scared to lose her fiancé. I get it. But still. That's a huge, you know, moment for her, is that she just got engaged to this guy, they're going to get married, and now their world's coming to an end. And she's part of our family, the police family, because she's works with police and fire. But this is a really serious allegation, and this woman made a point of asking her supervisor for advice after which she also made a point of not heeding that advice. She should have known better, but she didn't. And in this case, while I'm game planning this confrontation or a different way of, of confronting this guy where it's not the police who are interviewing him, I learned this information that the cat's already out of the bag, the suspect already knows. And at that time, Patrick's fiance, the one who's kind of spilled the beans, She's related to one of our dispatchers, and that dispatcher calls me and says, hey, I hear that my niece's fiancé is under investigation, and it's your case. And I said, is it Patrick? Yeah. I said, so your niece is Tracy? Yeah. I said, have you had any contact with them in the last day or so? She called me last night, and she started asking me questions about what should I do, and I told her, don't 
inform him about this investigation. She said, I already did. And our dispatcher read her the riot act, basically said, you screwed up big. How could you do that? Keep the big picture in mind. There's a little girl involved here. This might cost you your job. Turns out it did. So there's this disbelief among Patrick's fiance and later on with Patrick's parents, Mike and Shelly, that he could ever be responsible for anything like this. And during the conversation between Tracy and our dispatcher, her aunt, she mentions, should we start deleting stuff off his computer? Who says that? Tracy, Patrick's fiance. Says she wants to start deleting stuff off Patrick's computer. Yeah, and our dispatcher, she says, absolutely not. You'd be destroying evidence. Don't be stupid here. Don't be stupid. Turns out Tracy makes some emotional decisions that night, and it costs her her job. But Dave, if she's, so she's convinced he didn't do it, so are the parents, and yet she's suggesting she delete stuff off his computer, which implies that there's stuff on the computer that nobody else should see. So I asked her about that specifically, and she says, well, he watches a lot of porn, not to say it's child porn, but regular pornography. And she thought, given the circumstances and the allegations, that it could look bad for him. I see. And so that was the reasoning behind, let's delete his internet history. Okay. I mean, that I get it. That makes sense. Once I find out that my game plan to get this confrontation between Cassie's mom and suspect isn't going to be able to happen because the element of surprise is gone. I'm thinking I need to write a search warrant and start grabbing as much evidence as I can because it's probably disappearing as I'm writing. And so there's exigency. I've got to get this search warrant. I've got to get out to the house. I've got to contact suspect and hear what he has to say. So I go straight out to where the suspect works and said, hey, you have any idea why I'd want to speak to you? No, have no idea. Lie number one, right? Because I already know he knows. So I kind of look, and Detective George was with me. I looked over at him, kind of smirked. I knew how that was going to go. We had a pretty short conversation, but prior to him lawyering up, he gave me enough info to kind of corroborate dates and that this girl would go to his house after they had gotten the divorce. So I get a little bit from him, but when I start talking about the actual sexual contact, he says... I ain't talking to you anymore. And I said, all right, turn around, put your hands behind your back. You're under arrest. Take him off to jail, lodge him for an initial set of charges based on what I heard during Cassie's interview. And they're, they're big charges, like big time felonies. Like he's looking at a lot of time, probably the rest of his life, if he was to get charged and, you know, sentenced on all of it, he's gone forever. So I go back to my desk and I start writing search warrants for his house, for his cell phone, for his computer, all that stuff. And while I'm doing that, uh, I'm going as fast as I can. Mike and Shelly, Patrick's parents, show up at the police station with Patrick's fiance, Tracy, and they want an explanation for what's going on. And that conversation did not go well at all. Mike and Shelly were absolutely irrational and unreasonable It devolved quickly into where the dad questioned my competence and questioned the virtue of this victim, (gasps) Cassie. And that struck a nerve with me, and I basically said, get the hell out of my police department. You're trespassing. I've got nothing else to say to you. And I said, how about this? When I find evidence 
that absolutely proves what your son did, I'll bring it to you and I'll show you. And what they say to that? Looking forward to it. And now, I've been dying to ask, everyone seems to be in such utter disbelief that he could possibly do anything like this. What was his character like? He has no record whatsoever, um, presents as Joe Normal, um, has a, a good job, has his own house. No drug problems or anything? Nothing like that, And uh, which is pretty typical. We deal with sex offenders that they fit in. Sex offenders fit in with society because they know that if they don't, they kind of stick out like a sore thumb. They don't want to draw attention to themselves. They want to kind of just be under the radar. So Patrick is absolutely fits that mold. So I write this search warrant. I dismiss the parents out of the uh, police station and actually stop by my sergeant's desk. And I said, you're probably going to get a complaint about me. It's probably coming based on the way that interaction went. And I write the search warrant. I get it signed the next day. We go out to the house and search Patrick's house. Tracy is there. I contact her, talk to her about this stuff. And she's like, oh, yeah, I told him everything. And I know I screwed up. And I know I'm probably going to lose my job over this. But I don't think he did it. I said, okay. So we search this house and go into bedrooms. And I'm finding bedspreads that have been described by Cassie in her interview. I'm like, he held on to it. It's years later. Do you confiscate that? I did. As evidence? Yeah. Start searching through the kitchen area. He's got a big junk drawer, and it's deep, and there's all kinds of stuff in it. And in the back of it, I find an old digital camera with a memory card in it. I take the memory card, Cool. That's the kind of stuff I'm looking for. I get flash drives. I get laptops. I get all kinds of stuff that I think relates to what this case is. Kitchen junk drawers are a gold mine, aren't they? Were you digging around in that drawer because you were looking for something specific? Or were you just, you just never know? The search warrant was specifically for electronic devices, cell phones, specifically ones that had cameras. Uh, it's important to note that Cassie, during her interview, said that he used to take pictures of these sessions with her. So I'm thinking, okay, maybe I get lucky, and this guy for years has held on to this. I know this is like prized possession stuff for people who are interested in sexually abusing kids. And I thought this guy's probably got his little trophy case somewhere that is hidden away, and I'm going to find it. And so you think about your house and all the different places that you could hide things. We looked in the laundry room and found a flash drive that was in a box in the laundry room. I don't typically keep thumb drives in a laundry room. So we take all these things. I've got a forensic computer examiner that I work with. He's got decades of experience, and he's really thorough and really good. He's just an odd character. He's in the nerdery. Right. They're like the hero nerds, though. They always come through. Yeah. This guy's really, really good. And he's credible because he will testify on behalf of the defense or prosecutors. He just tells the truth about what he found. He's not, you know, only testifies for defense attorneys, only testifies for the prosecution. He's, he's diversified. So I hand him this thumb drive. I hand him the computers. And I hand him this memory disk, you know, a little one inch by one inch memory card that you get out of digital cameras. And I hand him that, and he pulls up the photos, and he says, okay. And I said, can you check for any deleted stuff on there? And he goes, yeah, hang on. Let me run a recovery program. 
And he says, this might take a while. And he says, I'll call you when I've got something. So I leave and I go back to the department thinking it's going to be a couple hours. I'm 10 blocks from his house, which is where his office is. And he calls me up and says, I just proved your case. Oh, wow. And I said, what are you talking about? And he goes, I'm not even going to say it over the phone. I just want you to come see what I got. So I go back to his office and he says, you're going to want to sit down for this. Okay. I was like, stop doing this. Let me know what you've got. He pulls up the first picture, and it's a photo with my victim and the suspect while he's committing his crimes against her. And he goes, there's 12 deleted files on this memory disk that I just recovered. Uh, the timestamp on it, I don't know if it's accurate from the camera, but it puts you within the time frame that this girl would have been going to this guy's house. And he goes, so you've got that charge that you charged him with. That one's proven right there, but there's more. So we go through these sequentially, these pictures. And I'm sitting there like I get tingles thinking about it right now because I've never had this kind of evidence breaks the case type thing. I truly was shocked. I was hopeful, but I was shocked when he pulled this stuff up. And the sequence of photos shows him in the middle of one of these sessions with Cassie. And what do I see in the picture? The bedding that I had seized during the search warrant. Oh, my God. I was like, jackpot. That's exactly what she described. I mean, her face is in this. And she's six or seven in these pictures. Yeah, she's a young little girl. And he's got interesting markings on him. He's got a tattoo on his lower right abdomen that's pretty distinctive. And he's got a mole on the shaft of his penis that looks like it's in the shape of a heart. I'm thinking, those things are good for me too. Most people don't get their tattoos removed. And the location and placing of these scars, marks, tattoos, those are going to help me corroborate that he's the person in the photo. Do you have to write a search warrant to get a look at the mole on somebody's penis? Yeah, I wrote a search warrant for Patrick's body. He's in jail at this time, so I actually called his attorney and said, hey, by the way, I'm serving a search warrant on your client. If you want to be there, you're welcome to, but I just wanted to give you a professional courtesy heads up. I'm going over to the jail right now, and I got to take some pictures. Can you have a chat with your client about being cooperative? Because I'm going to be taking pictures of his nether regions, and this could get a little awkward. So I think this might be the, the only time I've ever taken pictures of someone's penis. But knowing that he had lawyered up on me, I wanted him to know that I knew. And so in my notebook, while I'm taking pictures, I start with him in his jail clothing, and I said, all right, take your shirt off. And first thing I notice, distinct tattoo that is in one of the deleted pictures we recovered. And I said, all right, so I got an odd request, but I need you to pull your penis out and pull the skin tight because there's a mole on the shaft of your penis I'm going to take a picture of. And I open up my notebook and I have the pictures that I've recovered spread out in my notebook. And he looks over and his body visibly, he starts shaking, like quaking uncontrollably. Wow. Like, oh, fuck, I'm in deep shit. Did he have anything to say for himself? He didn't say a word. And I didn't ask him any questions because, you know, he's got rights. But I wanted him to know that I knew. And I said, oh. And I take the picture and I go down to his penis and he's looking down at the picture and I'm looking at his penis. And I'm not like right on top of it like I am with the microphone here. I'm, I'm keeping my distance. I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> but I go, oh, there it is right there. And I said it because I wanted him to hear it. There's that mole right there. And I look at my partner, Matt, and he said, yeah, that looks like it. 
Okay. Thanks for your time. See you later. What a day. It was great. It was awesome. And, of course, I call the prosecutor on the case that I had worked with on numerous cases and say, hey, you are going to love me. It's not a he said, she said anymore. I've got pictures to prove all accounts that we charge him with. Hey, small town fam. Did you know that according to FBI property crime data, most home break-ins happen in broad daylight? So as the days get longer this spring, protect your home with Simply Safe. It's the award-winning home security that we recommend. Hey, small town fam, Detective Dave here. Yardley's right. As a former police officer who's responded to hundreds of alarm calls, the benefits of Simply Safe cannot be understated. On Small Town Dicks, we often discuss home security and situational awareness. Simply Safe provides an easy and effective way for you to accomplish both. Simply Safe was just named Best Home Security System of 2024 by U.S. News and World Report and recognized for the best customer service in home security by Newsweek. And you, Small Town Fam, can test out a Simply Safe system with absolutely no risk to you with. Simply Safe's 60-day risk-free trial. If you don't love your system, return it for a full refund. So protect your home today. Our listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Be sure to take advantage of the Small Town Fam discount at simplysafe.com/smalltown. That's simplysafe.com/smalltown. Do it. And so it took months back and forth where he's offered a certain amount of time. Uh, he's saying, no, I'm not going to do that because that puts me in prison until my parents are likely going to be deceased. What's the offer? Offer initially was, I think, 50 years. Wow. And that would have put him right around 80. And how many counts? You, you mentioned that if the victim is under 10, that carries a triple sentence on each count, I'm assuming. Do you right. remember how many counts you were able to say, here's the charge? Based on just two of these 12 deleted photos that we had recovered, we've got enough to put him away for 50 years in our state. And that's if I don't believe all the other stuff that she said happened. 
which was weekend after weekend after weekend where this stuff happened. So he ended up getting charged with 10 or 12 big charges, and he ultimately says, okay, I've had enough. I'll take the deal, and it was 34 years. Were you disappointed that it was not more than that based on the irrefutable evidence you had? I, For me, at that time, 34 years was the biggest sentence I'd ever gotten on somebody. So not to say that that's my takeaway on cases, but to know that I'll be retired by the time this guy gets out of prison, those are satisfying. And the family was happy about it because, again, Cassie doesn't have to take the stand and, and stand in front of this guy that— you know, molested her for years. And 34 years is a long time. You put that into context, 34 years is a long-ass time. Did you ever go back to Patrick's family and show them the evidence that you had against him? I'm glad you brought that up. So I ended up serving a couple of search warrants on Patrick's house because after finding these pictures, I wanted to find the camera. I had already handled the camera, but I just took the memory card out of it. Prosecutor wanted that camera because we can tie that camera to the file name on the pictures. So when I went out there, nobody was home, but Patrick's parents live about four doors down. And we already talked about my interaction with them at the police station. I had printed off one of the pictures in PowerPoint and put a big black box over the penis so I'm not showing anyone child pornography. And I wanted his parents to identify the girl in the picture and I wanted them to see the tattoo in the picture. And when I showed it to his mom and her sister, I believe, so Patrick's aunt, I said, hey, I don't want to kick in this guy's door. If you've got a key, there's a couple things I need to grab. Here's the search warrant. Yeah, okay. So they walk over with me, open up the door. We go inside the house. And I said, just as a side note, I've got a picture here. Um, can you identify who's the girl in that picture? Oh, that's Cassie. I said, do you see anything else identifiable in that picture? No. And I said, does your son have any distinct tattoos? And she describes it to a T. And I show her another picture, and I said, does it look like that? She's like, um, yeah. And I said, under that black box is your son's penis. And it was kind of my FU moment to them for saying that I didn't have any evidence and I'm just taking a teenage girl's word over theirs. Well, you kept your promise. You promised to bring evidence when you had it. And, and I pointed that out. I said, hey, now I'm just showing you that I do have evidence to prove exactly what your son's being charged with. This isn't a kangaroo court. I've got something. And the aunt says, that's not his penis. That's a penis. And implied that I had photoshopped. You're Seriously. Me. Right. Oh, my God. So I've seen Dave's photoshopping too, and it's like so it's bad. It's <laughs> he clearly didn't do this. One. I'm not that technical. And what about Tracy, Patrick's fiance? Did she stand by him after all was said and done? Right. So right after speaking with Shelley and the aunt, and you know they imply that I photoshopped this picture, I call Tracy, who's actually driving home at the time, and I said, "Kind of have an odd question for you, but." does your fiancé have any distinct tattoos anywhere? She goes, yeah, he's got one on his lower right abdomen and describes it to a T. And I said, that's in a picture Patrick took of one of these sessions where he's abusing Cassie. And she says, oh, my God. And within a day, she moved out and left and totally disconnected from that family. Appropriate reaction. 
Yes. And she also lost her job. She lost her job. She ended up um, apologizing to me profusely, saying, I'm sorry, I just didn't want to believe it. And I totally understand that reaction. We get it all the time in our caseload. He would never do something like this. Or I've never, I love this one, I've never seen him sexually abuse a kid. And I always say, well, I wouldn't anticipate he'd do it with witnesses around. (laughs) With the door wide open. Right. Hey, come watch this. So she had an understandable reaction. She made some obvious mistakes. But at the end, she tells me over and over, I'm so sorry. Her reaction to me is understandable. Nobody wants to think that they are in a relationship with this horrible monster who could sexually abuse a little girl. So I understand where she's coming from. And at the end, the light comes on for her and she realized she'd made some huge life-changing mistakes. Minus having it on video, like in real time, like a surveillance video capturing this or a witness walking in on it. I've never had a case with this kind of compelling evidence. So a witness walking in on it would be actually more credible than photos on a camera like this? Well, it wouldn't be more credible, but when you have a witness, obviously it's no longer a he said, she said, because I've got a corroborating witness. The camera obviously adds so many layers of this absolutely happened. Right. I mean, that the camera is the witness. It's so disturbing to me that he hung on to those photos for so many years and then basically hid them in plain sight, like in the junk drawer in the kitchen. I think... He thought, and I don't know if he archived them somewhere else and then just hit delete off the memory card and thought they were gone forever. And and I never found the actual copies that he retained. But I know that people who are interested in sexually abusing children and seeing children in sexually explicit activity or poses, that's that stuff is really hard to get. And once you get it, you don't want to relinquish it. You don't want to delete it. You want to keep it. That's your trophy. That's your memory of what you did. Uh, That's your sexual stimulus for later on. Say you want to draw on a memory and masturbate. You pull up that photo. I remember when I did this. For somebody who has a sexual interest in children, that's gold for them. They don't want to get rid of that stuff, so they keep it around. Do they trade those images too, or do they often trade only anonymous sexual images with children? We've had cases, not this one specifically. I don't have any evidence to suggest that he sent it on or sold it or traded it. But I've definitely had cases where we have people actively trading pornography. A neighboring agency had a male who received an enormous prison sentence, hundreds of years. He would babysit his niece and nephew that were toddler-aged, infant and toddler-aged, and would video record what he was doing to them. And then he would trade that. He would offer people that he was contacting online, hey, if you ever want to come to our town, you can rent her out for, for an hour. <gasps> oh, There's monsters out there. Dave. That makes and, me sick. Right. It's, it's disgusting. But we've had, we have people that create child pornography so they can trade it. It's a commodity for these people. Dave and I, you know, we'd hang out together after work, things like that, just being brothers. And he'd tell me about phone conversations that Patrick was having with his parents in jail. And you can kind of track the progress of this negotiation or how this case is going. And I remember Dave, and I really think this speaks to the caliber of Patrick, his parents believed in him so much that they cashed in a retirement to aid in his defense, to pay for his defense. And, and Patrick's not even man enough to like say, dad, you can't do that, 
Right. They own me. What defense are they paying for? The evidence is rock solid. There's irrefutable evidence. There's something to be said for loyalty. And I'm not going to fault a parent for being loyal to their child and believing in them, but they, they spent a hefty sum of their money to throw behind his legal defense. And in the end, it turned into a 15-minute hearing where he pled guilty and was sentenced to 30-plus years in prison. you got to really pick who you're going to hit your wagon to. And I believe we actually have one of their phone calls. It's a phone call between Patrick and his parents, Mike and Shelly, a few hours after he pled guilty in court. And I was present for that proceeding. And they're going back and forth about the future and you guys are going to be in your 80s before I ever get out of prison. And they kind of engage in this, how do we move forward with life? And then the conversation at some point turns to Patrick. And I'll let the phone call speak for itself, but there's some implication from him that he's... He's a victim. It's part of my civil rights. And I, I mean, I hate to get this position. It's a terrible position to be in, but think about this. I can never... The, the, the court can't charge somebody and say, hey, we're going to charge you with murder. But we also see that you are gay. So now you have to go for a longer time for murder. Instead of 25 years, you got to go for 50 because you're gay. They can't do that. It's discrimination against your sexual orientation, which is a civil right. You can't discriminate against someone because of sexual orientation. So why is it that if you murder somebody, if you murder somebody who is 20 years old or 50 years old or 10 years old, the sentence is 25 years. If you rob somebody, if I go and I rob somebody who's 25 years old, you get a certain sentence. If you rob somebody who's like six years old, like if I went to a six-year-old and held a gun up to them and then took all their toys, that'd be incredibly traumatizing. But it's the same sentence if that person is six or 30. So why is it when it comes to a sexual crime, with sex crimes, why is it when the, when the victim is younger that they charge a harsher sentence? They're discriminating based on sexual orientation. So he's basically saying his sexual preference is for young girls. Therefore, that's his sexual orientation. Therefore, he's being discriminated against for his sexual orientation, much like if he were gay. Yeah, but his logic is disturbingly flawed in so many ways. Exactly. But of course, trying to pick apart his logic is like... It's a fool's errand. It's a violation of civil rights, and the problem is that it's not popular. People don't care because nobody likes people who've committed sex crimes. So it's not a popular uh, class, but I think I have a class action lawsuit. So that's what I think. Well, you, you might. You know, I mean, that's something you need to do. You need to get all their... You should have access to their law books now, shouldn't you? Once I get up there, I will. But yeah, I'm going to file a class action lawsuit with some other people. You just keep working on it. I mean, I'm sorry. I couldn't take care of everything. Sorry, it's fine. I'm going to file a lawsuit for my Eighth Amendment for cruel and unusual punishment because they're punishing me by... They're causing so much in my life that's going to be ruined, you know? And and it's not just 34 years, you know? 34 years, but then afterwards... Like, I'm I'm afraid of going to prison, but I'm more scared of year 35 and year 36. When I get out and I'm alone and I have to register as a sex offender, and I have nothing. And it's just, you know, that scares me more than anything else. And that is cruel and unusual punishment. And also, in, in prison, you know, people who are sex offenders get extorted, they get beat up, you know, things happen to them. It's 
sucks, and, and the gods, they don't do that to, to separate that because it happens a lot, and I think that is cruel and unusual punishment. Right. The thing about it is, you know, I could have murdered somebody and gotten less of a sentence. I could have got 25 years for murdering somebody in cold blood. So what... The, the, it's a witch hunt for people who are sex offenders. The, what's the purpose of making that charge so steep? Because you're just telling me, you're telling every sex offender in the world that if you sexually do anything, if you commit any type of sex crime, if you sexually abuse somebody, then you are better off murdering them when you are done. Because then you'll be going to prison for murder and they can't testify against you for any of the sex crimes. You're going to get less of a sentence. How messed up is that? Yep. I mean, I know these are crazy things that we're talking about. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. The system's messed up. The system's unfair. Absolutely. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, yeah. Why didn't we get to say something? And they all did. They're victims. They're victims, right? That's what it comes down to. Well, half of them were lying. What? They were lies, though. Those were all lies. Yeah, I know. You raise your kid better than what's your name any day. I know that. Oh, no. Well, you do everything you can, and we're going to do everything we can to make sure you're comfortable in there. That's all we can do now. You know, we're going to, if you need to get a TV, we'll buy you a TV. You know what I mean? If you need whatever, commentary, commentary, we're going to pay for that. Well, I'm going to do a couple other things too while I'm in prison. So basically what I want to do with these, with these lawsuits is I want to paint a picture because they're, you can't say that a crime is a mandatory minimum for these crimes is 25 years. So which means a judge can't even sentence you to less than 25 if you want to, you know? But the thing is, is there are people on, the, on each end of the spectrum. There are people like me who have made mistakes, who are good people, who were good parents, who, who did good things in their life, but committed a crime. And there are people who are evil people who just want to go and do this more and more, and they don't care. And they're glad they hurt people. There are evil people out there. And, you know, when I, my lawyers brought me a lot of case law, and I've read about people and some of the stuff they said in trial. And there are people who have went to trial like I just did and went to a sentencing. And they've told the family, like, I'd do it again. And I, I love it. I, you know, like crazy stuff like that. Like, they wow. are evil people. But the thing is, myself and those evil people, they both get 25-year sentences. And then the dad and the son talk about my presence in the courtroom. They just refer to me as the detective uh, and ask why my presence was necessary in that room. For, for me, for Dan, for other detectives, when someone pleads guilty and is held accountable for these types of things, that's my closure. I want to see this through. And that's my moment where I see that you are convicted and for some reason, they don't understand why it would have been important for me to be present for that. But the dad and the son have an exchange where they're talking about wanting to kick my ass and how they really want to go after me. Did you see the detective there? Yeah, I wanted to kick him in the fucking ass. Dude, I, was, I had this thought in my, hat, my head. Yeah, I want you to go up over the counter, but I didn't. If he had said a word, I would have knocked his ass out because I'm already going to put the food on my life, so. You didn't have any reason to be there. No, he didn't. He just wants to torture people. That's it. He's just a vindictive piece of shit. Yeah, you know, I'm beginning to notice that that detective takes pleasure in everybody's pain. Yeah. Yeah. 
It was entertaining. I'm just sitting there rolling my eyes. Are you kidding me? Am I really listening to this? It's interesting that even after he's been sentenced to prison, you still listen in on his phone calls. Is that because you're listening for something specific? Well, honestly, he's got a period of time where he can appeal his guilty plea. And that's a landmark moment, date in his case. And I wanted to hear what he had to say. And so that's why I listened is let's see what he has to say now that he's pled guilty in court. And he admits to all this. So I know that if we get to a, an appeal, post-conviction appeal, and he's trying to say, hey, I didn't really want that deal and appeals it successfully, now I've got a recording of him saying I did it. And it's just more evidence for me. Right. I get that. That makes complete sense. Wow, Dave, that is a job really well done. I admire both of you so much. Thank you. Noble work. Noble work. Small Town Dicks is produced by Zibby Allen and Yardley Smith for Paperclip Limited, with editing from Logan Heftel and Yardley and Zibby. Music for the show was composed by John Forrest. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you like to listen to your podcasts. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Small Town Dicks. Also, visit our website, smalltowndicks.com, for more information and to leave questions and comments for the team. <laughs>